Hello, my name is Isaac Keith Martinez, and welcome to Isaac's Haunted Beard. Today we're going to talk about Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, a film from 2006 that's part slasher film, part mockumentary. Uh, mockumentary is a mock documentary, a movie that's meant to look like a documentary. It has the style of a documentary, but is in fact a scripted movie that is designed to satirize the subject that is the topic of the documentary. In this case, the topic is Leslie Vernon. He's the subject. And Leslie Vernon is a killer. This documentary follows Leslie Vernon, a slasher killer, who is preparing his big night, a killing spree that will allow him to join the ranks of other slasher legends like Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, and Michael Myers. This film takes place in a world where those slashers are real and their massacres are historical events. Most of this film shows Leslie spending time with the film crew, explaining his motives, revealing the tricks of a slasher, and delving into the psychology and symbolism of a slasher, their victims, and their murders. Although this all could have been done seriously, it's all pretty light-hearted and even comical. The killer is, for the most part, and for most of the film, pretty likable. Now, <laughs> at one hour and three minutes into this film, the tone and the style of this film changes as the documentary film crew decides to stop making their film. Why? This is the moment in the movie where Leslie is about to begin his killing spree and they decide they can't have any part of this so they stop filming. So if they're not making a documentary, then there's no need for this movie to continue to look like a documentary. So the final act of this movie plays out like a real deal horror film. I dig this movie. <laughs> I've always, I've always dug this movie. Um, you know, I've said this before on my show and I guess I'm saying it again right now. This is one of those movies that I think it gets better every time I see it, you know? Uh, I've always liked it, but I watched it before recording this episode, and ah, I, I love it. <laughs> um, this film came out in 2006. Ten years before this movie came out in the year 1996, Wes Craven did Scream, which already satirized horror films by acknowledging horror tropes and the rules of a, of a horror film, and that movie was so good it's and it was so it's so popular and it, and it it spawned a terrific franchise so you know <laughs> it potentially could scare people from trying to touch upon the same subject because if you do a horror film that tries to do what scream did you are setting yourself up to be compared to Scream. And if you can't, at the very least, 
do a film as good as Scream, you're probably going to be criticized for making a bad movie. Now, how do you do it different than Scream did it? Well, simple. Do it in a different format. And the filmmakers chose the mockumentary format. So right away, you got a movie that's different from Scream, you know? Um, it's not going to be like Scream at all, really. Now, as original of an idea as that may seem, it's kind of been done before. In the year 1992, there was another mockumentary called Man Bites Dog. It's a French film. It's in black and white. And it also is about a documentary film crew, crew following around a killer. Except that movie takes place in a very real world. Our world. And the killer is, you know, a, a serial killer. As where uh, Behind the Mask takes place like in a movie universe. You know, where Jason and Michael and Freddy were real people. So... He's not a serial killer. He is a slasher. And the tone of that film and the tone of this film are completely different. However, I also really like Man Bites Dog. And yet, I can't immediately recommend it to everyone because I actually find my Man Bites Dog to be a little darker, a little harsher. So if you do choose to check that film out, I'm recommending it to people who are, I don't want to necessarily suggest more brave, but people who, who, who like, you know, dark films, disturbing films, because it gets pretty dark as where I actually think behind the mask, the rise of Leslie Vernon is something that could even appeal to people who don't usually like horror films. Now, granted, you have to kind of like horror films. I don't think that anybody would want to watch this. I don't think my mom would want to watch this movie. But people who are more picky with their horror films, people who like horror films but don't like all horror films might like this one. Because you got a guy like me who loves horror films so much, I'll watch any old garbage. <laughs> uh, then granted, you're going to like this movie, you know, and uh, or, you know, you might like this movie. You're more likely to have seen it already, actually, because it's a pretty popular film. I'm, I'm pretty convinced most of you have seen this movie already. I am hoping that if you haven't, I can talk you into it. Uh, not only through my enthusiasm, but also I'd like to point out that moments ago, I explained the plot without giving away spoilers. And yes, there are things I could have spoiled and didn't do it. Not going to do it. Now, although this movie could appeal to your more casual horror movie goer. I do think this movie is extra rewarding for those of us who specifically love slasher films because we're familiar with the tropes that they're talking about in the movie. Uh, so, you know, I feel like we're in on the jokes. Kind of like This is Spinal Tap. That's a very funny movie. I really like that movie. And I think that movie appeals to a lot of people. But... I love heavy metal. I mean, I love lots of different kinds of music, but I also really love heavy metal. And um, I'm very familiar 
with the world that's being satirized in this is Battle tap so i feel like it plays a little different to me than someone who straight up has like no idea what that world is like and the same with this movie behind the mask i think that if you are uh, not only familiar with slasher films but a fan of it you're in on the joke and you'll really appreciate uh the jokes because uh you'll also recognize a lot of in jokes and that's also something i'm not going to do this is one of those movies where there's a lot of i guess what you call easter eggs there's a lot of inside jokes there's a lot of uh <laughs> things that you get if you've spent a lifetime watching these movies and i really appreciate that that kind of stuff now you know i've seen this movie a bunch of times and the last time i watched it was the first time i realized it's not really that violent for a slasher film which is interesting because slasher films are known for their violence i think one of the stars of a slasher film typically is the special effects slasher films is an opportunity for talented and creative special effects artists to really show off their craft and this movie doesn't really have graphic violence it's rated r you know it does have violence and it does have harsh language but it doesn't have graphic violence you know there's scenes where they kill um you know the leslie vernon kills his victims and sometimes at the moment of the kill the camera cuts away so you know people who are fans of gore they may ask they may ask well what's the point well believe it or not the point is the story because if you're not going to deliver on the goods with the violence you better have a good story isn't that weird though because i think a lot of people uh don't think slasher films have good stories like they feel like it's not important for a slasher film to even deliver a good story that they just need a setup here's your killer here's your collection of would-be victims have at it um <laughs> i get that and i do get that there are slasher films that are just like that but i do want to say that as a slasher film fan uh i don't think it's exclusively like that i think a lot of slasher films have a story especially considering that you have to have an interesting killer and i think that a lot of these movies introduce a killer that has lore and a background story is a lot of times it's a very sympathetic background story so i would argue that a lot of slasher films do in fact have a story this one even more so because honestly you really don't get to the killing in this movie until about the final act you lightly get some examples of it before then but as far as like this movie full-on becoming a horror film you really don't get that until like the last half an hour of the movie you pretty much spend an entire hour with these characters without violence and if you don't have a good story and if you don't have good performances then it's going to be boring and you do have a good story and you have great performances you know there's a horror film from the 80s called final exam that also spends about a good hour 
with the characters before they finally get to the killings. And that movie gets both criticized and praised because of that. Some people, like myself, praise it because it's different. And you get to spend so much time with the characters that by the time you see them get killed, you feel more about their deaths than you would otherwise because you feel like you know these people. You have an easier time sympathizing with their with their death. Um, other people criticize it because they say it's boring and it's unnecessary. So, you know, I don't really think either either opinion is wrong. It's just a matter of who you are as a person. With this particular movie, I'm even convinced that people who don't like Final Exam could like this movie probably because, if I were to guess, the hour or so that you spend with the characters where you don't have that much violence is smart and funny and both the jokes and the, and, and the smart script is just impossible to ignore. Now, Leslie Vernon, the killer, the slasher, the subject of the documentary, he is the lead in this movie. And he's played by an actor named Nathan Basil. It's not spelled how I just pronounced it. I actually don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's spelled B-A-E-S-E-L. And he's an actor that I'm completely unfamiliar with. I've only seen him in this movie. I looked at his uh, IMDb and he's done mostly TV work. And he kind of reminds me of Ryan Reynolds. And when I say that, I'm not specifically talking about the way Ryan Reynolds looks, but his, gosh, his aura, <laughs> that sounds so cheesy, his presence. He's not like overly hammy, like Deadpool. <laughs> you know, he's not constantly cracking jokes, but you know, he does make some jokes. Think about this. Think about if they were to do a remake of this movie, they wouldn't. But for the sake of my um, example, now picture Ryan Reynolds playing the part of Leslie Vernon. I think you can, and I think you now know why I chose Ryan Reynolds as an actor, a mainstream actor to compare him to. And also, and I guess if you don't like Ryan Reynolds, you're going to disagree with what I'm about to say, but I'm also using Ryan Reynolds as an example because I find him to be charismatic. And that's something that Nathan Basil has is charisma. And that's something that he lends to the character of Leslie Vernon is charisma, which is interesting because typically you don't want your audience to like your killer. You want your audience to be scared of your killer. And with this movie, you spend an entire movie getting to know this person who explains their motives in such a clear way and in a way that almost makes it, you know, understandable. And he's also incorporating humor into it, and he's just so naturally likable that, you know, you might even find yourself wondering if you're capable of being scared of Leslie Vernon, which is a neat trick that they have to pull off, which they actually do pull off. In the final act of the film, he switches. He turns off that charisma. He becomes a terrifying, cold-hearted killer. And I think a lot of that is by the decision to stop talking 
in that final act, he says a couple of lines here and there, but for the most part, he goes mute. And that's something that I associate with most slashers. And what's terrifying about that is when you are scared for your life, I believe a lot of the times what you would try to do if someone was trying to harm you is to reason with them. And it's next to impossible to reason with someone who won't communicate with you. Nathan Basil does a terrific job as Leslie Merton. Most of this cast is unknown. However, there are a few recognizable faces in this movie, including Robert Freddy Krueger England, who plays what would be the, um, you know, Dr. Loomis type character, you know, Dr. Loomis from Halloween, you know, the character that's going to try and save the day. He's in it. It is neat, right? Because, you know, he plays one of the most iconic villains in horror film history. And in this movie, he's casted as a hero, as a good guy. In a cameo, we have Kane Hodder. Kane Hodder is Jason Voorhees in three different Friday the 13th films, and he is a face that only horror film people recognize. So most people may see this brief moment where Kane Hodder's on screen and not even realize it's meant to be considered a cameo. But for the horror film nerds, we geek out. It's interesting that Robert Englund and Kane Hodder are both in this movie that came out in 2006 because both these actors were in another film that came out in the year 2006. And that film is Hatchet, where Kane Hodder plays Victor Crowley, the slasher. And Robert Englund plays a victim of Victor Crowley. Coincidentally, on July 23rd, when I rewatched Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, I did it in a double feature with the film Victor Crowley, which is part four in the Hatchet franchise. Because the day before, I did a triple feature of Hatchet, Hatchet 2, and Hatchet 3. And yes, I love the Hatchet films. Another recognizable face in this movie is Zelda Rubenstein, who plays the librarian. She is recognizable because she is in Poltergeist. She is the small woman in Poltergeist who tries to get Carol Ann back from the TV people. And this is her last film. She passed away in the year 2010. And I'm really happy she got to do this movie. You know, when you see Zelda, maybe you might think, hey, that's stunt casting because she's clearly a famous horror movie face. And this is an example of the filmmakers just trying to cash in on her fame with her fans. They want recognizable horror movie people so that the audience can, you know, mark out. And you'd be right. But that doesn't take away from Zelda Rubenstein's talent because the one scene she's in, she does have a monologue that she delivers. She does it very well. It is excellent. And I'm so happy she's in it. She really does elevate the film. You know, for the kind of movie this is, I think this movie is perfect. You know, when I say this movie is perfect, I don't mean for you to 
put it in the same group of movies that people would typically call a perfect film. Movies like uh, <laughs> Jaws or 2001 A Space Odyssey. But for what it's trying to accomplish, it succeeds. I consider this a perfect film. Um, this movie does not have a sequel. As of 2020, it doesn't have a sequel. This film came out in 2006. You'd think it'd have a sequel by now. And I am aware that this is a movie that they've tried to make a sequel for, but they just, I'm guessing, couldn't raise the money to do, which is really shocking because it's a popular film. I'm sure it's made its money back in DVD and Blu-ray sales. How could people not feel it was worth investing in a sequel to Behind the Mask. The slasher film fan in me really wanted to see a sequel to this movie because I felt Leslie Vernon was a good slasher and he had a great look, he had a great mask, and the actor had a great presence on screen. So yeah, of course I wanted to see him reprise the role. I definitely would check out a sequel to this movie. Now I'm conflicted because there's another part of me that's really happy that there is no sequel to this film because, as I said earlier, it's a perfect film. And, you know, part of what makes it perfect is that there's no sequel. Like, there's nothing to potentially ruin it, you know? Um, everything that you see on the screen is completely untouched by anything else that you could see in a sequel. You know, there have been times where I've seen a movie, loved it, then you see the sequel and it kind of tarnishes what came before it. I don't want to give examples, but if you can think of an example, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. And the fact that this movie doesn't have a sequel makes its unique original idea all the more special that you only get to spend this one movie with this character. Now, <laughs> This movie, I think, is fair to call a cult classic. But I, I, I hope that one day we can elevate the status to being a classic. You know, I think it should be a classic horror film, not just a cult classic. You know, I'm going to give you an example. Because I, in my mind, it already is a cult classic. I, I'm sorry. In my mind, it already is a classic. To me, in my heart, it's already a classic. Now, I'm going to give you an example of what I mean. Because I think a lot of horror movie fans associate the word classic with age. That a movie can't officially become a classic until it's old. And you can tell if it has withstood the test of time. And if it's regarded as timeless, then it can be qualified as a classic. Outside of its simple, you know, quality. Well, here's my example. Let's go back to the year 1998. Let me ask you a question, folks. In the year 1998, would you have considered the film Nightmare on Elm Street a classic? Of course you would. And that film came out in the year 1984. I chose 1998 as an example because 1998 is 14 years later after the year 1984. And the year 2020 is 14 years after 2006, meaning it's old enough. <laughs> it's a classic, because I say so.
because it's a classic, consider an essential movie for a horror movie collector. I think you have to own it, not just watch it. You have to own it. I think that there's uh, <laughs> movie collectors out there who buy everything, in which case you already have it. And then there's movie collectors who are more careful or more picky, more selective. Choose your word. I don't care. <laughs> Any of them work. And, uh, you know, for those people, I, I would like to say that this movie is, is essential. I think you should definitely add this to your, your collection because, um, because it's, it's a perfect, uh, perfect film. This movie was directed by Scott Glosserman. And if you don't recognize that name, I don't blame you because he's not a famous horror movie director. Which is weird, because this is such a great film. I just called it a classic. And yet this guy didn't go on to make horror films. You know what his next movie was? I checked. It was a documentary about Wikipedia. <laughs> Dude, that's weird. <laughs> okay. Do you know what Gather is? Gather, and the way it's spelled for this example is G. A-T-H-R. It's a company that you can hire to get your local movie theater to screen films. You go to their website, you join, you log in, you look at their collection of movies that they have to offer. You can pick something from their catalog. Their catalog is representative of what they have the rights to show publicly. And you say, I want this movie to play at my local theater. And then they go, well, what's your uh, local movie theater? So you give them the address. And what they do is they contact your movie theater. And they tell that theater that a movie has been requested to be screened at that location. So what they do is they offer the opportunity to screen that movie theater if they can sell enough tickets for that screening in advance to warrant that theater reserving that screening room for your movie. So they give you a chance. So they make an announcement. They say, hey, this theater is giving people, the public, the opportunity to see this movie on the state at this time if you're willing to buy your ticket now and if enough people buy their tickets, then we will contact you and let you know that the screening is definitely going to happen and it's on. If they can't sell enough tickets, they don't do it. Wow, what a long-winded explanation. About 10 years ago, my friend did a screening of Behind the Mask, The Rise of Liz Vernon, through Gather at my local movie theater. Contacted me, said, yo, you got to buy these tickets because uh, we're trying to make this happen. I was so excited that it was a great idea. So I campaigned hard to get people to buy tickets and it worked. We got enough people to uh, buy out the room and we got to see behind the mask, the rise of Leslie Vernon on the big screen, a movie that I had already owned, a movie I could have watched on any given night at home. And I paid for the opportunity to see it on the movie screen. And I'm really happy about that. <laughs> Did you know that Michael Jackson has a song called Behind the Mask? It's on one of his posthumous album releases called Michael. It has nothing to do with this movie. It's just a coincidence that I wanted to share with you. And it's a good song. I like it. 
if you love horror films, get this movie. If you don't love uh, horror movies, uh, then don't get this movie. Maybe, you know, make a sandwich or something. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, thank you for spending time with me. I really appreciate it. You know, I love talking movies with you. Remember, behind my mask is my haunted beard. What's behind your mask? Until next time, folks. Aloha.